Hello, I'm Huron Zahi and welcome to Brandenburg One. Thank you for joining me for more Baroque Now. As always in Baroque Now, I'm joined by one of the inspiring musicians and artists bringing Baroque music to life with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Today sitting with me is the lovely Michaela Oberg and we are going to talk a little bit about her very musical upbringing, important Baroque literature for wind instruments and what it takes to become a historically informed performer. Thank you, Michaela, for coming in today. Thanks, Hugh. It's a pleasure to be here. Like principal Baroque flute and recorder Melissa Farrow, you play many different instruments regularly with the Brandenburg. Please tell us a little bit about them. I do. I Look, I specialise in, in flutes and recorders. Um, so I guess within that I play several instruments. The main ones I play with Brandenburg would be my one-keyed Baroque flute, which is a copy of a palanca by Fritjof Auren, who's a maker in Dusseldorf, a wonderful maker. And this is a, a one-keyed four-piece Baroque flute made out of Grenadilla, which is a, a black-looking timber. And is a Baroque flute usually in four pieces? Is, is this something that was quite common or, or what was the standard at the time? Yeah, it was a development that um, that occurred in the beginning of the 18th century with the flute. Before then, it was a three-piece. Mm-hmm. So the the head joint, the foot joint, and then the body where your where your right hand and left hand go was in one piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it moved into being four pieces. So your left hand and your right hand at an individual joint also. Wow, and I, I didn't I didn't know that it was as late a development as that. I, you know, some of these instruments are on display in museums, and mm. it just sort of sometimes the dates meld into one. I mean, there's so many of them. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? I, I'm always surprised myself when I actually look at the dates and I think, gosh, we call it the Baroque flute, but really, really its its use in the Baroque period, it, it, the the flute that we use are only in the last oh, even 50 years is, is pushing it. Yes. Speaking with uh, some of your colleagues um, about their particular instruments, a lot of the times the string players talk about the bridge and the whole instrument set up uh, being a flat sort of setup. And that was something that was consistent, even though there were other changes, that was consistent throughout the Baroque period. But with flutes, it's almost as if there's a myriad of, of instruments coming from all different countries. So many. Mm. But what an exciting time to have been a, a flute player or a flute maker then. You could, you know, the the, the possibilities of ex, uh, experimentation would have been huge. So exactly, changing the embouchure, they're changing the design, they're changing the timbers that they're using for it. Would have been would have been really fun, I think. Unlike many uh, hip musicians, you actually had a, a very special benefit of growing up with this repertoire at home. What music do you remember hearing and listening to as a child? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Oh. So embarrassing. No. Look, do you know what my biggest memory is? Is listening to this beautiful series um, by Anne Rachlin of, like a, I think it's called um, Fun with Music from the 80s. And so you're introduced uh, to uh, music of Holst, of Stravinsky, of Haydn, of Handel, of Mozart, um, and stories of the composers' lives with excerpts of these of these music um, and I just remember, I remember listening to these in car trips and, and apparently, you know, we would sit against the wall with the old big headphones on and the old tape decks entertaining ourselves um, as children. Uh, apart from that, uh, ABC Classic FM was always on, always mm. on, and we were always listening to, to Mozart and Bach uh, or Handel, you know, so much Baroque music. I don't even... I don't even know. And even in my 20s, I'd come across a piece of music and go, I know how that goes. And someone goes, what is it? I'm like, I've got no idea. 
<laughs> Look, I haven't got the best memory in the world and I, I, I don't know if it's rose-tinted glasses or I'm just remembering the good bits, but certainly um, certainly, I remember the music was always on in the background at my grandparents' house we go to visit also. Um, at the dinner table, mum and dad were talking about music. It was always present. Uh, my mum taught piano and clarinet, you know, a couple of afternoons a week for years and years and years. And, and I, I feel like now, even now, I, I have a really good understanding of the clarinet repertoire because mm. I remember hearing... All those pieces over and over again. And in terms of your parents now, so maybe explain uh, a little bit about their careers and and the influence that you think that had on your own um, musical development. Oh, I think I'm understanding this more and more as I get older, to be honest, less so when I was younger. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to answer your question, but I'll tell you a story anyway. I think my whole musical education as a kid was playing music, sight reading, so playing music for the first time with either mum and or dad and also my brother when we dragged him into it, um, just for fun. So we might not play the piece ever again, but that was that was my education. We just played music, yeah. picked it off the shelf and played it for an hour or so and that was it. It seems like a much more, well, pre-20th century version of music enjoyment, uh, Prior to music being recorded uh, for our enjoyment, uh, being able to play music together as a family was something that was much more prominent, wasn't it? Oh, and highly embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I yeah, again, I look back on it fondly. I'm so thankful that, for those experiences. Mm. But um, do you think a career in period music was inevitable for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you do you remember when you first thought, "I like this. This is for me." Definitely. It was definitely not um, a career path that was mentioned or, of course, not pushed on us. In fact, I don't think I remember being ever asked to practice except perhaps before the Amy B exam at Stedford. (laughs) But no, it was never never, um, suggested or anything. It was just a natural progression for me. Um, I think there's been various light bulb moments uh, along my career development. I I don't want to say I sort of fell into things by accident but I think you, you learn about yourself as you get older and, and there's definitely been a few moments where I'm like oh this is this is a passion of mine and then you go further down that route and then you go oh here is another focus that I'd like to spend my life yep. mm. which culminates in being a early musician. And are there any particular pieces of music that brings you back to those times uh, remembering some of this repertoire with rose tinted glasses some mm. of the clarinet repertoire mm. are there things that uh, particularly remind you of your parents or that period of time? Absolutely oh if we speak about the clarinet I mean while mum was teaching dad my brother Carl and I were all up upstairs above the music room singing along to the Weber clarinet concertos or the Brahms repertoire um, so for sure that has a special memory, but um, there's a lot of Handel sonatas for flute or for recorder that um, I spend a lot of time playing with my dad or playing with my mum on piano. And whenever I teach them these days or hear them, they definitely warm my heart. So is there a particular piece that reminds you of of that time of maybe your dad or your mum playing? Uh, look, there's, there's several pieces that um, come to mind, but there is an album um, that Brandenburg put out of um, a Handel's Water Music, the the suite in G major, um, and there's a minuet where Dad plays the descant, which which we would have heard several times as kids. 
So this is the Flute Suite in G Major by George Friedrich Handel, his water music minuet one and two from the Brandenburg Favourites album that was released in 1991 featuring Howard Oberg, Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. So obviously, Michaela, we can't hear the recorder yet. What exactly are we going to hear in a minute? We're going to hear the Descant recorder come in, which is a soprano recorder. It's a high-pitched instrument that's going to um, shimmer on top of the strings in a little while. And uh, what memories does this sort of uh, evoke for you? Do you remember your dad actually playing this, rehearsing this particular um, melody? Not so much uh, playing and rehearsing it because I was quite young, but I definitely remember hearing this on the radio or perhaps on CDs. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how they were playing it, but for sure it was a well-known piece in my childhood. Sweet. It is, and Handel is such a master of orchestration. The um, the melancholy of that lament, that uh, descending line, mm. contrasted with the, what you were saying, the shimmering of the the soprano. Uh, yeah, descanders. and it brings a childlike innocence to to a quite a, a serious melody as well. Yeah. Now, do, have you played this piece yourself? For sure, I would have played it as a kid if it was on the radio and it had a recorder, and I can see myself running over to the. <laughs> the recorder and, and trying to work it out myself. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember the first time I would have heard it or played it. But there was a particular incident. Instance, sorry, um, when I was over in London with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment scheme, and we were in some kind of um, a rehearsal or workshop or something, and they asked for us to play it on on piccolo flute. Fine, but I remember inside going, "Oh no, I'm so used to hearing it on the desk can that oh, I can't change this image in my head." And how different are, for example, the piccolo flute and the soprano recorder, the desk can? Um, I guess they're similar in range. The piccolo flute's got a, a more extended range, and I think it can be a bit more shrill across the orchestra. So that was the Flute Suite in G Major, Minuet 1 and 2 from Handel's Water Music, recorded by Howard Oberg, Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra on Brandenburg Favourites in 1991. Now as an accomplished and very well-studied adult, what advice would you like to give to your students or, or perhaps there's some advice you would have given to your younger self approaching <laughs> this, sort of, this sort of repertoire for the first time? Oh, advice to students and advice to my younger self might be a little bit different. <laughs> Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hopefully we all have that same that same memory. Um, oh, look, I think the biggest thing is uh, to students is to be curious, be open to new ideas and be inquisitive. 
ask why or find out find out for yourself why we have these assumptions or why we have these interpretations of music don't just take don't just take your teachers your teachers thought yeah. yeah. And the reason why I asked that question is because there are several very prominent flutists in history, especially in Baroque uh, music history, that uh, are often quoted as, as being sources of a lot of information um, involving historically informed performance. Uh, these crucial written works that come to mind uh, were either by Jacques Autoter or Joachim Kvantz. Now, uh, what do we? What do those two names mean to you? And, and what sort of things have we learned from these two men, Otter and Kvantz? As as individuals, they were very important in their in their day and in in, in their scenes. Um, but for us, with their books, um, they're also really important primary sources for us to to read to get a better understanding um, of the the musical context, as well as uh, they give you notes on how to play the instrument. But for me, I think. Um, Beyond the the personal the personal help with uh, you know tone production or articulation, but it also gives you an idea of of what the music was trying to achieve, what the musicians were trying to achieve, and it also gives you an idea of their individual personalities. Mm. Quants and Otter write very differently, and it's fascinating to to feel their personality through their words. I know it seems obvious, but they were both wind players, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Quantz played several instruments as well. But the Otter book was actually the first instruction manual, the first um, treatise on individual flute, recorder and oboe. Before then, they were in large sort of compendiums, large books where they'll briefly mention. But this is the first book, I think, in 1704 or so. And uh, actually, with the Otter um, too, uh, obviously this is coming from a man who, as a as a player, uh, knows the instruments uh, intimately and a, and a and a maker too. and a maker too. Mm. Yes, that's what I was going to yeah. say. And and so his understanding and those lessons that he's passing on, mm. it's it's a legacy, for sure. And it's such a small glimpse, though. It, it's so brief, the book, that I feel like we're just getting a very small window into into his work and life. Are there things that now, later on, with more practice and study and also experience, are there things that you think uh, are missing from that book that would have been crucial maybe to include? Oh, I think in every book you always want more. Yep. Uh, one of the fascinating things for me reading these books is actually what they don't say. You can put yourself in their shoes if someone says, right, write a book, write a book on how to play the recorder or how to play the flute and there's a natural process you've got to go through where you choose what to include what are the most important for you and so finding out what these what these men have considered to be the most important elements that they should get across first um, particularly in the quant it's a larger book so he had more time and and, and um, more room to discuss things that were important to him but there's two things that are really interesting to me one is what he didn't put in and also is what he spoke about uh, when he said don't do this and I always love to read when they say don't do this because then mm. obviously it happened and that's their opinion yeah exactly it's a perfect example mm. of of learning from mistakes rather absolutely I love it and the recorder, one of the things I learned from from reading Otetel's work was actually that the recorder is essentially one of, if not the oldest musical instrument. What is it about the flute that and recorder that gets to the essence of, of what it is to, to play music? Um, maybe you could tell us about the development of the recorder more generally. Sure. Look, I specialise in, in 
I guess, Baroque recorder. So I don't know a great deal about the very early history, but we know, you know, at least briefly, we know um, that wind instruments, so a tube, a tube with some holes in it have existed from very early on. And essentially that's what the recorder is. It's a tube with some holes in it that you, you blow through and you don't need an embouchure to produce sound, which I think is why it was so widely accepted um, and accessible to many people. And even to today, why it's a fabulous instrument for young children, mm. despite um, the common perception but you really you can like I always joke with piano you just push the buttons and and play but with recorder it's a really easy wind instrument to get access to. And how did the change then the development and the move away from the recorder towards what we know as the traverso the baroque flute how did that happen and and when did players start exploring this other instrument? Yeah, look, it seemed the transition away from the recorder seemed to happen in the first half of the 18th century um, when I guess the music was becoming more demanding soloistically and, and the chamber music was flourishing and, and instruments were getting their own individual parts and the limitations um, of the recorder, whilst whilst it's it's got so many beautiful aspects, but the limitations of it in terms of volume range and, and, and dynamic nuance I guess were being superseded by the flute um, which had a, you know a larger range and and having your embouchure your lips involved um, and various breath pressures do give you a wider range of things. Now I doubt that Otto's work was the first one that you read in terms of learning how to perform uh, either flute recorder or, or oboe. I'd be surprised but <laughs> <laughs> they were they were on the bookshelf in fact my dad um my dad famously had three or four copies of of the Quants in particular, um, sitting above, you know, the, the computer room desk, the computer in the household. <laughs> and they went progression from f- absolutely dog-eared falling apart to slightly less dog-eared with, you know, only a few pages falling out because he kept, you know, he'd read them so often. So, so often, yes. Apart. But after reading it, do you remember maybe a change or something that happened in your own playing, some sort of, some sort of a, uh, advance or advancement or some sort of change? That's a good question. I think these are not the kind of books you read as a novel uh, and then put down. You return to them constantly um, with a a query in your head or a query from a piece of music that you're playing um, or a frustration more often than not. And I think the more you read it or the more I read it, the more I actually felt more comfortable with um, choices I'd made or, or I felt comfortable that you're allowed to make your own choice if that makes sense, rather than there's one way of doing it. Because when you compare the books to each other, they often contradict uh, each other. Or even with um, Quants, again, because it's a bigger book, he contradicts himself in the same book. And I think what that taught me from reading it a few times and from and from studying and, and reflecting on myself is that it's okay to it's okay to conflict with your own interpretation and your own ideas. So with books like these, how do we go about using them and, and how do you approach a book like this? Um, I think you need to approach the book with a, a goal in mind or a question. Again, that comes back to the curiosity. So you're playing a piece of music um, and you know that Quants has answers and you open it up and you think, right, um, how did they um, how did they develop embouchure or tone? And, and you can read it or... Or mm, I've got a piece of music. It's a slow adagio. You know, how can I how can I realise the importance of the harmony? And again, then he can instruct you on that and guide you. Is there a particular piece of music that you think fits well with your own personal study of of either of these books? Something that you know that you definitely ahead of its performance you referred back to these works and and uh, 
had a particular question in mind or some sort of inquiry that um, that you needed some guidance for? Oh, Hugh, I'd love to say yes to that question. I think I think the answer is no. I think it's more in my own private practice when I'm exploring pieces. Yeah. Or, or for example, when I, um, I'm preparing a, a sonata with a slow movement and I want to think about my ornamentation. And, you know, after a few years you've been a bit a bit stuck in your own way of doing and, and if you read someone else's way, again, you always get refreshed with ideas. Mm. Now, we've, we've talked about the development of the Traverso superseding essentially the, the recorder, but there were definitely composers at the uh, tail end of the Baroque period who were writing for both at the same time, weren't there? They <laughs> sure were. Now, I remember from Blazing Baroque, in fact, uh, we played a, an excerpt from this particular recording when, when Melissa Farrow was sitting across from me. Um, you and Melissa actually shared a fabulous duet, didn't you? Oh, I loved this program so much. Just love this piece. Um, so what are we going to hear, Michaela? We're going to hear the, we call it the Telemann Double Concerto, so the Telemann for Flute and Recorder, um, which Melissa and I played, Melissa on Flute and, and myself on Recorder. This fabulous conversation that's developing between your oh, two instruments. I love it. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about this concert series and what memories you have of playing on stage alongside Melissa Farrow. Oh, I just remember we had so much fun. It's always such a joy to play with Melissa. We've played together for so many years now that um, it just feels so natural and, and you feel you feel so free when you've been with colleagues for so long. With the orchestra also, you feel so free to take risks and to, and to really enjoy yourself. And, and this is the perfect music. Um, he's written so well for both of our instruments because he understood it. Um, yeah, and we, we just, it was so comfortable and so much fun. And is Telemann nowadays one of those referential points for flute players, for recorder players? I can't speak for other people, but for me, certainly, um, Telemann has taught me taught me a lot about Baroque music, about my Baroque instruments, and about music in general. For sure. Are there particular lessons maybe you could you know elaborate on? Um, I I particularly like his solo flute fantasias, um, and for me, it, I guess it's like watching a good film or a good book. When you come back to it, you you 
you learn more and more about what's there. And what he's taught me is about the nuance capabilities of Baroque music. There's so, so many layers, like a really good onion, so many layers to the music that you can explore. And also there's so much nuance um, available in our instruments if we really seek to find it. There's so many possibilities. And that was the Telemann Concerto for Recorder and Flute performed by Melissa Farrow, Michaela Oberg, Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra as part of the Blazing Baroque program in 2016. Now, apart from reading works like those uh, treatises uh, that we've already mentioned by Otter and Kvansa, a lot of musicians go through an initial training, uh, an initial more generalised training like you and I did at the Sydney Conservatorium. But what sort of specialisation do performing musicians especially need to go through in order to attain the sort of level and understanding of early music that would make you essentially a soloist uh, with an orchestra like the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra? Sure. Look, I don't know whether it's necessary to reach the level, but certainly it helps you along the way and, and expedites your, your learning. Uh, I guess in, in a typical bachelor degree, like we had at the, the Sydney Con, um, you're exposed to a whole sort of generalisation, a, a, whole, a whole breadth of, of musical styles. You know, there was Indonesian gamelan. I know they've now got a, a Chinese instrument orchestra. We did late Beethoven. We did, you know, all, all types of things, including a, a, a Baroque music, kind of like a taste tester, which is so important in your first degree. But it still is quite generalised. Um, and so I think if you if you find a passion in early music, you do need to go further to really understand, um, really understand the capabilities of not only the music but also these instruments. Um, there's there's something to be said for really specialising and taking the time to get to know the instruments, so that you don't play them, you don't play them how you want to, but you play them how how they yearn to be played. You can you can respond to their peculiar peculiar I don't know, aspects. It's mm. <laughs> a nice way to put it. But once you understand that, maybe perhaps like driving a, a vintage car or or other things when you really understand the capabilities then you can you can exploit it in, in the best possible way and I think um, uh, doing a, another degree what we often do so over in Holland many of us go to study either another bachelor specializing in early music and then perhaps a master's as well um, like I did and and this gives you it doesn't really give you more information if you're not ready to or not willing to 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 do the work, but it gives you the opportunity to meet with other people who are just as interested in, in, in really going deeper into it. Um, and, and of course, a wealth of teachers who've already done done a lot of work. And so again, it helps you expedite what you know. And and you mentioned obviously doing yet another bachelor degree or and mm. on top of that, maybe a master's. This is a, a, a lot of study, isn't it? It is. It is. Were you working and performing in ensembles at the same time as, as doing this uh, this study? For sure. I think most of us were. Again, I always liken it back to being um, a, a doctor or studying medicine, if I can if I can put ourselves up to such lofty positions. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a, a general medical degree, um, from my understanding, and then you go on to specialise. And so I feel like your, your, your undergraduate degree, your first one, you know, is, is generalised and it gives you an understanding um, and general skills that you can apply broadly. But then um, the more study you do, and, and even beyond a master's, I mean, the degrees don't give you the information, but they certainly give you the time 
which you can put into practice if you're, you're playing at the same time, which I think is really important. Well, thank you, Michaela, for coming in and sharing all of your wonderful knowledge and, and wealth of musical influence uh, today. Thanks, Hugh. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, hopefully for all of you out there um, who haven't listened to Michaela's fabulous performance as part of the Bach series, Michaela's performance of the Corrente from Bach's Partita in A minor for solo flute is currently available on Brandenburg 1. The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with principal partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.